let me get situated here. I got too many things to carry, and my wife will tell you I'm not good at multitasking. So, it is what it is. In fact, that might be part of the curse that we're going to talk about today. I don't know. Um, but anyway, welcome to Frontline Bible Church, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone who is online. Thank you for being here, and uh, thank you for dealing with my musings. I, uh, obviously, many of you guys, I think, know who I am. I'm a friend of John's. I've been attending here for a little while. Of course, it's hard to say and know that because COVID makes things crazy. So if you haven't already, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now, funny thing is Genesis is my all-time favorite book of the Bible. And so for those of you who are like, oh my goodness, the series just never seems to end, I'm the guy who's like, I never want it to end. See, so uh, there's so many nuggets in Genesis. And honestly, I think I could preach for three hours on Genesis chapter 3, but instead I'm going to only go for two. So... uh, I have a Baptist background. What do you want from me? Um, Just kidding. So when I was typing in the fall, you know, for my sermon title, I accidentally hit a G and put in the gall, and I was like, Freudian slip, everybody. That's actually kind of true. So we'll keep that in mind, but um, today we get to kind of talk about the doom and gloom of the curse of man. You know, all that doom, or as JD's been saying to me, doom on you. Ice Age fans. Um, When it comes to the doom and gloom, again, my Baptist roots are just resonating with this fire and brimstone thing. So I'm really having a good time with it. But before we get into the main bulk, I wanted to kind of segue from where we came from last week. Last week we talked about the deception, right? Satan deceiving and the great lie. And if I may speak poetically here, the great lie is that you can dethrone God and become God yourself declaring right and wrong for yourself. But the problem is, is whenever you've looked at societies, look at the 21st century, look at the 20th century, every time people have done this, it ends in disaster. The 20th century is the bloodiest century of all time, excluding the wars. Let that sink in. So when you declare God to be God yourself, you go, I can declare right and wrong, I can be as God, actually separate yourself from him. And that is the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3. And one of the things, especially in the first three chapters, four chapters of Genesis, you know, we obviously there's literal, you know, you read through the text and there's literal things that the text says. But then there's also themes in the text. And one of the biggest themes in the very beginning of the Bible is order versus chaos. You have the God's perfect creative structure and order, and then you see the interpersonality weave in in Genesis chapter 2, and then Genesis chapter 3, we see chaos fully strike. And then the rest of the Bible is how do we reconcile the chaos, right? So that is one of the biggest themes here. So you're going to hear me reference that as we go. just want to give you guys a frame of reference before we dive in. Because God is a God of order, and sin is And therefore, order is considered in many ways to be known territory, right? It's what we know, we know, it's what we're familiar with. But sometimes chaos strikes. Unfamiliar territory hits your life, and you don't know how to handle that. And that is ultimately because of the curse of man. So if you are suffering today, and we're all suffering to some degree or other, we're all suffering, but if you're suffering today, it is likely because you or someone else is living the lie that Pastor John talked about last week. 
Someone's living a lie. Someone is trying to declare themselves as God in your life. Or maybe you are trying to declare right and wrong for yourself. Much of the suffering today is caused because people believing that lie and because of the consequences of sin. So, first things first, understanding sin. Sin is not something we understand externally, but it's something we understand internally. Let me explain. God knows sin the way a doctor knows cancer. If you have cancer, the doctor doesn't have cancer, but he can tell you all about it, right? He can tell you all how terrible it is, what it's going to do to you, where it's going to bring you. And we know it like the patient. I have the cancer. It's in me, and it pulls me every, every little way, and my sin life can't handle this. My life is in disaster because the cancer is within. So God knows it externally, but we know it internally. Sin has infected everything in creation. That's what we're talking about today. And therefore, has set us apart. Now, let's define sin for a second. What is sin? You know, it's kind of this ambiguous term I feel like people use nowadays for saying bad. (laughs) But sin is actually an archery term. Sin means to miss the mark. Do I have any archers in here? Yeah, okay, all right. Men. (laughs) Who needs a gun? I have a bow and arrow. Call me Hawkeye. Um, Or Green Arrow. We're not discriminating. All right, so (laughs) some of you got that. Some of you were like, huh? Um, (laughs) But here's the thing. When we sin, we're missing the mark. It's an archery term, right? So when you shoot an arrow, you ever miss your shot because you didn't get up enough? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Make sense? So, all right. So, today, I want you guys to understand that sin has very real consequences. Sin has very real consequences. And I'm sorry, guys, today's doom and gloom, all right? I'm going to try to be as peppy as I normally am, but also, we're going to get real. So, the first thing I want you guys to realize that sin does, as we dive into the text of Genesis chapter 3, the first thing it does is it sets us at odds with ourselves. Let's read verses 6 through 7. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, off, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Today, we are going to talk about the consequences of this moment. Okay? We see in in an instant the consequences of sin. Notice that. The moment they took a bite of this fruit, they realized they were naked. First off, that must have been the most awkward situation on planet Earth. Can't imagine that, you know? It's like when you're dreaming, but you realize you're not dreaming. Anyway... Um, But this moment, the very moment that this took place, the moment they bit of that fruit, is the moment when sin entered the world. Lust, hate, vulnerability, all these things were born. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And also when death entered, one might say entropy. How many of you would be comfortable walking around naked? Things you don't expect a pastor to say when he comes to a church. 
That's what they were doing. And suddenly, they realize it. What happened there? Why was it not a big deal before? Because before, they weren't self-conscious. Sin had entered the world. Before, they lived in perfect openness and vulnerability. Trusting and loving each other, trusting and loving God, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no sin. Such a weird existence to think about. It's like tranquility. Like, how is that even impossible? It seems so foreign to us, and it should, because that's what sin does. And here's the thing, guys. We can't help but be self-conscious, can we? Perhaps you're self-conscious of your looks. Perhaps you're self-conscious of your voice or, or your behavior. You don't know why you do what you do or your identity or maybe um, depressed or anxiety. And if really, depression and anxiety is just heightened self-consciousness, right? You're overly self-conscious. And that is the moment of the fall. They realized they were naked. They became self-conscious, self-aware. Before they were living in the glorious paradise of God and in his presence, and now separated, realizing something is off. And what's off was not creation. What was off was the fact that they tried to be God. And in fact, the sad part of that is, is that they wanted to be as God, but they already like him. And then they fell. So here's the thing. Sin sets us at odds with ourselves. Sin, I mean, think about all those different sinful desires you've had in your life. You know it sets you at odds with yourself. How many of you guys have ever looked in the mirror? It's okay, we're in church, bear each other's burdens. How many of you ever looked in the mirror and thought, man, what a wretched man that I am? Right? Yeah. You're ashamed of yourself. You're at odds with yourself. And that is because that is the consequences of sin. Now we are at odds with ourselves, fighting within, unable to even trust our heart, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's tough. That's a tough life to live. But let's move forward, because I could talk about that very thing for another hour, and uh, I think we all want lunch. So, The other thing it does is that it sets us at odds with God. Again, we're just walking through the text here, and this is obvious, but sometimes it goes, oh, that's a good point. It sets us at odds with God. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Notice, Afraid? That's new. They weren't afraid of him before. He goes, because why? I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I imagine this, so you have to get my brain, which is a very scary place. But when I think of this moment, I always think of the parent who walks in on their kid with their hand Maybe not in the cookie jar, but covered in all the chocolate chip. And then you go, son, did you have a cookie? And he's like. And you're like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, you liar. I'm trying to give you the ample opportunity to be honest, right? Every parent's done this. If you're honest with me, I won't punish you as bad, right? That's usually kind of the deal. You're honest, and I'll... (laughs) 
Some evil parents are over here like, nope. <laughs> that kid's getting it. <laughs> but notice their sin put them, to bring it back down to seriousness, put them in a place of shame. What did they do? They heard God, and normally you would think, oh my goodness, I hear God coming. I want to go meet him in fellowship and just bask in his glory. No, they were afraid. They went the other direction. They hid themselves in the garden. Like you can hide from God. I don't know. But some of us think we can do it, right? Well, no one knows about this sin, as if God's not up there knowing exactly what you're doing. They became afraid and they hid from God. They desired to be like God, and of course, they, at this point, they actually separated themselves from him and were no longer in communion. They were infected, they were vulnerable, and they also had forbidden knowledge. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil was for God and God alone. He's the one who separates good from evil, and that was forbidden knowledge. Mankind wasn't supposed to have it. But God basically caught the child with his hands in the cookie jar, didn't he? Because it happened right afterwards. You read that account, you're like, oof, busted. But notice how even in their failure, God gave them a chance to come forward. There's a moment of grace there at the beginning. I think some people miss that. He could come in and knowing the fact and just point his finger and said, you done messed up, and then just cast them right out right then and there. But he didn't. He gave them a chance. Sin does have very real consequences, and it sets us at odds with God. It separates us from him, and sometimes it makes us want to hide ourselves from him. Some of us who are struggle, struggling with maybe even self-worth, identity, depression, anxiety, especially those types, want to pull away. Maybe those with anger. You know, you're angry at God, so you want to just stay away. But the thing is that that's only going to make the sin worse. It never makes it better every single time. God is perfectly righteous, though, isn't he? We see this a lot, just perfect justice and love and grace at the beginning where he gives them a chance, but he's also perfectly righteous and perfectly just. Thereby, he cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't. He has to judge. He has to let, you know, he can't let sin go unpunished. Think of it as he is the benevolent father. Fancy word for saying the loving father. He loves unconditionally. But what is, let me ask you this, guys. What is love without truth? What is love without judgment? Enablement. Uh, a pastor once told me, and I've never forgotten it, truth without love is harshness, but love without truth is compromise. And that's always resonated with me ever since he said that. Now I'm over here trying to balance the beam. And if you guys know me, I'm actually very much on the truth side. I'm very much more of a, of a wrecking ball than I am of flowers and rainbows. Okay? This is the way I am. But it's like now we have to learn to balance this. But God is that. He is the perfect balance. So let me ask you, what did he have to do? As a benevolent father, he had to punish. He had to bring judgment, didn't he? He couldn't sit there and just let them get away with it. You know, that would be death by compassion, also known as death by empathy. Have you guys ever met a parent who enables their child too much? And they keep saying, well, I just love them too much. I love them too much. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? You're looking at, maybe you are that parent and you need to fix that. Um, or just bring them to the nursery and we'll take care of them. <laughs> but the thing is, is that when you really think about it, you're like, man, we need we need benevolent fathers and people to judge. We need judgment. We need discipline when things go wrong. And Jesus does that. 
So he does what any good father would do, and he issues punishment. We're going to talk about those punishments here in a second. But one of the questions I get when the fall comes up is, well, if God's so loving and benevolent, why does he send people to hell? Seems like a fair question. But the thing is, we're asking the wrong question. The fall tells us that it's not God who sent us to hell. We did. We said, no, God, I declare right and wrong for myself. And as soon as you put yourself at odds with God, you have damned yourself. It is not God's fault. Because God, by his nature, loves you. But God, by his nature, also has to judge you. He can't let something slide like that. That would be the uh, overly empathetic parent. So we know where sin separates us. Micah 3, 4 says this. You don't have to turn there. It says, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. That's not a verse you hear read very often. <laughs> but God, because it doesn't give that warm and fuzzy, right? We prefer John 3, 16. It's much nicer. But it's, but it's true. Our sin sets us at odds with God. It sets us at odds with him. It separates us from him. But you know what else our sin does? Of course, I think we all recognize the fact, yes, I'm Christian. I believe it separates us. You know, I can see where it sets us at odds with ourselves. It sets us at odds with um, God. But here's the thing. It sets us at odds with each other. And that is when, this is when things get dicey in Genesis chapter 3. It's actually part of the, one of those parts that's both heartbreaking and also is kind of comical. Um, God gives him a chance to be honest, as we mentioned before, and he kind of gives him a chance to repent, and he doesn't, because here's the thing. Once evil sets in, evil, the evil seed, it never takes the blame, does it? You ever meet a narcissist? Are you a narcissist? <laughs> Can't take the blame. We don't like taking blame, and I get it. Why? It stinks, because you have to admit that you are a filthy, wretched man when you do it. So here's the thing. Adam, Adam is how it's pronounced in Hebrew, and it means man, by the way. Very creative name. And uh, so Adam, or Adam, he was the one who God, you know, took from the dust to the ground, breathed the breath of life into him. He was God's first man creation. Perfect, special, unique. And so what does Adam do when confronted with the truth in all his masculine glory? Well, in verse 12, this is what he says. The man said, the woman whom you gave with, to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. <laughs> now, talk, talk about pathetic. I mean, it's, it's so pitiful. It's, it's, like I said, it's comical, but it's also like, bro, really? So the gall of Adam here is insane. I mess up, I sin, I go down the road of chaos, and then I have the gall to turn around and shake my fist at God. And how many of us have done that? You made a mess of your life, and you go, why would God let this happen? As if you didn't make any choices down that road. As if God's not beckoning with his hand, saying, no, come unto me, follow my way. Now, you know better than God. I will declare right and wrong for myself. That's what happened here. But he, so here he goes. The woman whom you gave to be with me. So here's what's funny. First he blames the woman. Which is just, you know, 
Classic husband move, right? Well, it's the wife's fault. That's why I can't hang out with you guys, you know, the wife. Uh, they always blame the wife. <laughs> Hope you don't blame your wife. But, you know, but then he blames God. It's just mind-numbing. He wasn't even, and you know what's pathetic about him taking the fruit? Is he wasn't even tempted or deceived or slowly, sneakily led astray. Literally, his wife just goes, and he's like, yeah, okay. You know, that's, that's what happens. And so it's so funny when, you, when people go, I, so when I was, uh, I've been to churches where they tried to blame Eve for it all, right? Well, if it wasn't for Eve taking that first fruit, I'm like, no, 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 guys, Adam's the idiot, okay? <laughs> Let's just be real here. So he wasn't even tempted. He merely ignored his duties as a husband. He ignored his duties as a husband to protect, to bring order and structure, and instead surrender to disorder. That's what he did. Men, we are called to be the people who bring order to our homes. We're the ones who are supposed to bring that order and structure, and meanwhile... <laughs> He just throws it to the wind. And you could tell that these were probably fighting words, right? Can you imagine? So they're standing there before God. His wife is right there. God confronts Adam. Notice how, yeah, notice how he confronts Adam, by the way. He didn't confront Eve. And he, he confronts Adam, and Adam's like, the woman whom you gave to me, I can only imagine the look on her face. You know. Anyway, first marital spat, Really? It was the first marital spat, and it wasn't a good one. That's kind of pathetic, like so many marital spats are. Let's just be real. If you've ever been in a marital spat, a little marital fight, they're usually over something really, really stupid. You ever do that, like after you fight your spouse, you're like, why? That was the dumbest thing. Why did I even care that much about that? My wife and I, we, we oftentimes pride ourselves in being married for seven years and have never fought. We have disagreed, but my wife is so much of a saint, she will never fight me. Notice how she's the saint who will never fight me. I want to make that clear. When she's upset, she just walks away. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going I'm to think about this. So that's about as intense as our fights get. Um, and then she makes me feel like a terrible person. But, um, which I'm sure is what Eve does to Adam at some point. But look at verse chapter, like verse, verse chapter three, 13. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? So he, you, know, you can imagine God, God going, oh, all right, Adam. <clears throat> all right, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She blames the serpent. But here's the thing. Who is the serpent? Satan, the great liar. The great deceiver, the evil one. At least she had a bloody excuse. You know, that's what sticks to my mind with this. Like, yeah, she was deceived by Satan himself. My word, I can hardly stand against my own temptations, let alone Satan. You know, she at least has, has an excuse. But here's the thing. Whenever we sin, we always desire to justify it, don't we? And that's what we see Adam and Eve do here. They sought to justify it and blame somebody else we like to blame our spouse our ex our parents our work or any other possible outcome besides myself i know it wasn't me had to be somebody else as long as it's not us we're okay with it 
And then the thing is, it still sets us at odds with each other even further. Because if you go to, this, to uh, the second half of verse 16, what does he tell <clears throat> Eve will be part of her curse for all women? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall have rule over you. Oof. That's got to stink for all the strong, independent women out there, right? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Let's have, let's have more fun. How many of you say your, hus- your, your desire has been contrary to your husband at some point? Oh, we got a bunch of liars in this room. No, one, no one's like, no, nah, I'm not raising my hand on that. Mm-mm, nope, I agree with everything. <laughs> I'm not falling for that one. But no, it's true. And, but guess what? That means the vice versa is true, right? If her desire is contrary to his, that means his desire is contrary to hers. We're now at odds. And this is why marital spats happen, or dumbest things. You're at odds with each other. That's what sin does. It puts us at odds with each other. Yet God gives the office of ruler still to the husband. Man, sin messed things up. The nature of sin can bring disorder, right? And, but here's the thing. It is part of a, the nature of men. To go back to that sermon that John uh, preached a few weeks ago when he talks about the differences between men and women. Talk, you know, men have like a box brain. We think of things very individualistically. We focus, hyper-focus on a singular thing. That's how our psychology works. Um, much too many women's disdain. And women, you guys can bounce around to so many things. It makes my head hurt. But the nature of men can bring order, right? He shall have rule over you. It can bring order because he's just... But the problem is, is that it can also bring so much chaos. Many women in history have flourished and have suffered under the hands of men. You look at some of the craziest rulers, some of the best rulers and everything, they're men. But guess what? It's all whether or not how that balance works out. It's part of the curse. In fact, it's also in this chapter, um, toward the end, I want you guys to notice this. Her name was originally woman. So we have Adam, man, and woman. And woman simply means taken from man as an equal, right? And then when he gives her the name, now she is called Eve. She goes to the mother of all. She goes from who she was to what she does. I'm a mother. That's what I do now. Again, sin messed it up. So here's the thing. Desiring a carefree and expressive nature, she will always rub against the male order due to bringing the chaos into God's perfect order. She's now cursed with always rubbing chaos against that order. And that's why we see this against men and women all the time and all throughout history. It's this right here. We could really dive into that if I wanted to, but we won't. It's just really interesting. Um, So again... You have two people, one deceived by Satan himself, one, one deceived by, uh, well, not one deceived, one just choosing to engage in it, and then both setting them at odds with each other. And now because of that, we see history reflect the fact that sin has really messed it up, right? Set us at odds with each other. So if your relationships are struggling, it is because sin is somewhere in the mix setting you at odds with one another, and especially in a marriage, your marriage is struggling, where's the sin? Find it and amputate it. Remove it. Destroy it with extreme force, if you will, because it will keep setting you at odds with each other. And that's what we see happen here. So, 
Okay, sets us at odds with ourselves, with God, with each other. What else does it do? It sets us at odds with nature. And again, so, so the curse is kind of intertwined when you're talking about it, so I had to try to find a way to break this up, so that's why we're kind of bouncing through it. But remember, before the fall, it was a tranquil existence, one with divine consciousness before being corrupted with an earthly consciousness. They were perfect, and now they were imperfect. So we first see in this is that the serpent is judged, right? He says that, I curse you above all beasts. You will roll on your belly and the dust you will inhale and all that good stuff. And here's the thing. People go, that's weird. Like, whenever you're reading, you're tracking along in this pretty well, right? You're reading through Genesis chapter 3, and then the serpent part comes up, and you go, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. The snake is a symbol, and always has been. It is a symbol of deceit. It is a symbol of evil, and it is a symbol of danger. Let me, okay, you got to actually, how many of you guys hate snakes? Yeah, all right. Yeah, why? They're weird looking, aren't they? They slither on, their gr- on the ground. They don't have legs. They just kind of wiggle. They bite and they kill you or they suffocate you. They're awful. They, they eat you whole. Everything about them is awful. They're a symbol of terror, really. Um, so, curse is a snake above all things. And there's really nothing like snakes. Not many things, right? Snakes are kind of unique. And then you can talk about eels, but they're just snakes in water, <laughs> right? So, uh, anyway. But guess this here is actually kind of important. Because the snake becomes a symbol of danger. Remember, they were never in danger before. They had no reason to be afraid. They weren't even vulnerable. But now they were. So notice what happens next. In Genesis 3.15, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to talk more about this next week. Pastor John's going to address this because there's also, a, this is a double entendre verse. But before Messiah, this was taken as the woman's children, the children of men, will now be entirely vulnerable. There's enmity between us and nature. Think about it. Have, has, have you ever thought about Australia? Follow with me. Have you ever thought about Australia? Everything there wants to kill you, right? You even look at kangaroos and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a beautiful, cute kangaroo. Let me go play with it. It kicks you into oblivion. I have a friend of mine who lives in Australia, and I was like, oh my goodness, one day when I go down to Sydney, we're going to go hunt down roos. He's like, oh no, you won't. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Everything wants to kill you. You know, that's why we think of Steve Irwin as being a crazy madman. But now we're at odds with nature. How many things out there want to kill you? A lot. That's why I'm glad I live in Michigan, by the way, where the most dangerous thing we have might be a small little snake here and there, and I have to worry about running into a deer. When I go to Texas, man, I'm like, wait, you mean you guys have tarantulas like this big? Are you kidding me? Um, but that's what this is taken as. We're now at odds with nature. That which was taking care of us, this pristine, beautiful paradise, is now working against us. Nature is cursed too. That is why we have natural disasters as well. So to the woman, he said also in verse in, in, in 16, 
says, the woman, he, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. If you've had kids, thank goodness I'm a man, but I'm sure many of you guys can talk about the pain of childbirth. I get the impression that before this, it was a fairly painless process. It was just a natural, beautiful thing. But now it became painful. So here's the thing. Now mothers are cursed on always being on the lookout for that which could hurt her children. There's enmity between her seed and their seed. That's why you have the mother bear complex, by the way. The protectant mother, because her family is now vulnerable to nature and things outdoors. This is why the woman, and let me ask you this actually, by the way. Why is it that the woman has to worry about such things? That's not the man's for? Well, because if you read further into the curse, we see that's because the husband will be dealing with the, being at odds with nature in a different way. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, for, of, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So it's funny, because when you hear the curse of the woman, it's like, yeah, you'll be a contrary over you, you know, pain in childbirth, enmity with you and nature. Okay. With the man, he gets really hard on Adam, doesn't he, at the end? Because dust you were into dust, you will return. Like, he just, he lays it out because, again, a lot of things rise and fall on leadership. So according to the ancient Jewish thought, and I do love studying ancient Jewish thought because it kind of puts the Old Testament in a beautiful little light sometimes. The garden was what they would call paradise. And a garden is the perfect marriage between order and chaos. Because what is nature? Chaos, right? Leave a building alone for 10 years and see what nature does to it. But what is a garden? If you have a garden, you know you, you, you hone in that chaos. You bring it together. You keep it under control, and it turns into something beautiful and expressive. But now they're kicked out of that paradise. The perfect balance of order and chaos has been broken. Hence why mankind was made, by the way, with a duality. We have the knowledge of good and evil, and also two genders to complement one another. It's that order and chaos thing that turns into something beautifully expressive. However, once cast out of the garden, the rest of the earth was filled with thorns and thistles. In other words, men's curse wasn't just that they would have to work hard, but that the work would be hard to accomplish. Notice how we even return to the dust. We are sent back to the nature from which we came. Pretty intense stuff, right? Like, again, thank you for coming to church today. I'm sure you're getting all the warm and fuzzies. But it's important for us to understand the consequences of sin that it sets us at odds with nature. And real quick, before we get more to landing the plane, I want to talk about an important part of the curse of men and women. One of the most important parts of this is the present and the future and the way it corresponds to men and women. Men are cursed with always having to compromise the present for the future. That's what that means. You have to work every day of your life to eat. 
You are compromising the present, um, the present for the future. So therefore, capable men are always thinking about the next project, the next goal, the next big thing for the family, because he doesn't have the luxury of the present. To waste the present is to waste the future. This is why men tend to be workaholics, by the way. And this is why single fathers struggle, and why oftentimes kids of single fathers feel neglected, because he's worried about their futures, not their present. Kind of a, like, oh, wow, yeah, that is what happens. And, of course, then he sacrifices them on the altar of the future as opposed to the present. But the women's is opposite, right? She's the one who bore the child. She has to care for the child. We just had a child. Let me tell you something. That thing takes a lot of time, okay? And my poor wife is always being pulled to have to take care of the child in a way that I'm not able to. So, thus, women are cursed with always having to compromise the future for the present, have you guys ever tried to make plans with kids? Not going to happen, right? Never goes according to plan. Why? Because you, it's hard to worry about the future when you're stuck in the present dealing with the kids. It's why the two have to work in duality with each other. The man to focus on the future so that way she can worry about the present. And when done right, it's a beautiful thing. But when done wrong, it's disaster. So therefore, women are always having to focus on that. This is why many single mothers struggle. No man to take care of the future. She is stuck with both roles. But the kids prevent her from being able to focus so much on the future adequately without serious support. So the point here, this is also why God tells us to worry about the, the, the fatherless because somebody's got to take care of the future. So Okay, they don't have a father, then we need to worry about their futures. Okay, then also we need to take care of the, the, um, the orphans and the widows. Why? Because someone needs to do the other side. You see what I'm saying? That's why God points out, because like, you can't have, once you lose one, then somebody has to step in and take care of that other role. So, before sin, we were perfectly complementary, in perfect equation with each other, a perfect duality. But after sin, we see these roles were corrupted from within the marriage unit. So now we must always strive to rise above that, identify the sin, and remove it from our lives. We're at odds with nature. Nature tries to kill and eliminate us each and every day. And our own nature set us at odds with each other, ourselves, and God. It's tough. That's why we sometimes might feel overwhelmed by our sin, because we're trying to balance all those different things. God is essentially saying in his curse to men that you will live, but the life you live will not be easy because the entire world has fallen into sin. And I want you guys to notice this when you think your sin's not a big deal. Notice this. It only took one sin to bring such destruction. One sin. That's all it took. So he gives mankind, also after this, the stewardship to take over, to control, you know, Take the stewardship to care for the world, to bring it back to God's order. That's why he gives us commands and laws and all these different things. To bring it back to order, to reflect back to the garden. Maybe some of your heads just exploded because I know mine did when I figured that out. <laughs> some guy said that and I was like, what? And it makes sense because you actually see that. It's always calling back to the moment of creation. Paul does it all the time. So finally, we see the exile. 
Then the Lord said, in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tr- from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <clears throat> we died that day. Which is why we're ultimately separated from the tree of life. This is because sin has very real consequences. And I want to tell you guys today, it's okay to hate sin. It's okay to hate your sin. Only by hating your sin will you really truly be able to love the law of God, right? And appreciate his grace. So it's okay to hate your sin. It's okay to hate sin. We ought to. We ought not relish in it, right? So, Because here's the reality. God hates sin. It's a cancer, and it gnaws at your very existence. And it's always working contrary to you. So we need to remember that mankind is now tragically separated from God, and mankind died physically and spiritually that day. That is when we fell from grace. But this is why in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages, meaning penalty or payment, of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Pastor John's going to talk about that more next week. But your homework for this week is I want you guys to evaluate your life this week and see where sin has infected it. And then seek God how you can bring it back to his natural order. Let's identify sin. We need to be a separated people. And we ought not relish in it. Thank you all. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Holy Father, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you for this time you've given us to come to your house, worship you. Lord, thank you for this warning of the dangers of sin. Help us to reconcile that. Give us your grace and help us to seek you every single day so that way we might come in greater fellowship with you. Lord, I pray you'll bless this time and give us, uh, and as people walk and leave this building, Lord, I pray that they will make decisions to remove sin from their life and stop trying to hide it from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.